we are reading through the book uh, of the Bible together as a church this year. Um, if you see these on the info table, um, this is just a Bible reading plan. And for the entire year, we're reading through the Bible together. And this particular book just kind of outlines what, what we're reading together each month. So right now, as we're in October, we're reading through four different books. And one of them is Jeremiah. And as we're reading through the book of Jeremiah, each month where there's four different selections, we pick one of those books of the Bible and study through that book of the Bible each month. And so today, um, starting last week, we have been studying through the book of Jeremiah, and then the, the fourth week will be in Lamentations. And so um, we're going to be in Jeremiah today. Um, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, um, as we looked at last week, we looked at Jeremiah 20. So let me, let me give you a little bit of understanding of why we're calling Jeremiah uh, the study of Jeremiah, the weeping willows. And in, in, in this journey, as we're, as we're looking at it, there's kind of 12 different places on this kind of big map. And each one of those 12 places is a book that we're studying. And this is called the weeping willows as we're studying Jeremiah. And the reason why is Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. Uh, in other words, he's a very emotional person. So as he's Prophets in the Old Testament were told to go to the people of God who were found themselves in sin. And as they would go to the people of God and, and beg and plead with them, stop sinning, stop making idols, stop doing that, come back to the Lord. Generally, sometimes it would work and sometimes it wouldn't. Jeremiah, um, his job was to do it and generally it didn't work. And as it would happen, um, he felt this very emotional pain down deep inside. It bothered him deeply that they would not return. So as he wrote um, Jeremiah, you can, you can feel the angst. You can see the emotion that he had as he wrote because he wanted so desperately for his people to return to the Lord. And even through the book of Lamentations, it's lamenting on how the fact that they have not turned back to the Lord and followed him. So he's lamenting these things. And so as we saw last week in Jeremiah chapter 20, whenever he went to them and told them to return because the way that they were living uh, wasn't in, in line with the way the Lord would have, they tortured him, and as they put him in torturous stocks, we looked at that Jeremiah 20, and I, I chose it specifically because it's a tough text to try to see this man's being tortured for the Lord, and what does the dark night of the soul look like in the life of a Christian? Um, so that's why we looked at Jeremiah chapter 20 last week. Well, this week, we're going to have Jeremiah chapter 29 as our text, and if you've been in church at any particular time whatsoever, um, you have probably come across Jeremiah 29 especially verse 11. It's the coffee cup, you know, t-shirt verse that everybody always has. Um, and what we're going to do today is actually understand the full context of Jeremiah 29, 11, and really actually all of Jeremiah 29 and, and, and see it. But before we do that, um, I, want to, I want to pray, and then we'll, we'll, we'll go into Jeremiah chapter 29. So let's pray together. Lord, I, uh, I pray for your help this morning as we look at Jeremiah chapter 29 and as we look inside this particular context of these verses, I pray that it would be profitable for us. Um, a letter written from a prophet to, a people of, to the people of God you know, close to 2,600 years ago, it, it can easily for us be, be difficult to see how it has any application for us or any relevance for today. But its enormous relevance is clear. And so I pray, Lord, that you would, you would come now and Holy Spirit, you would superintend these moments um, with your word. I pray for myself that I am absolutely dependent upon your spirit to speak through me in order to teach your word correctly. And so I pray, God, that you would come now and use the things that I say to instruct us and those things that would be helpful and true, I would say, and those things that would not be helpful, you would keep me from those things. Lord, I pray, I, I am absolutely dependent upon your spirit. I, I am 100% aware that there, I cannot do this without your help. And so I pray that you would come and not, not just speak through me to people here, but also speak to me as well. I, I am seated in the congregation, as it were, with them, hearing from you. And so uh, anything that we hear, any challenges that we hear in this, that it's not for them, it's for us, for me too. And I pray for us all that we would hear these things and receive them. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So... What I want to do is give you a very fast Old Testament history, and I'm saying like 30 seconds history lesson, so you can know what's happening here. So, <clears throat> because here we're around 600, 597 into 580 BC, 
And as we get in, that's, that's 500 years and 80 years before Jesus comes. And as you get to about four, year 400, from year 400 down to, uh, you know, zero, there's this, they call the intertestamental period, the, te- the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God doesn't speak. It's kind of the end, you get to Malachi and like 400 years of God not speaking or interacting with his people whatsoever. And we're getting close to that as we're in Jeremiah 29. So um, back in Genesis chapter 12, in the very beginning, after the flood, after the earth started populating again, there were people all over. God goes up to this man, Abraham. Abraham didn't do anything to deserve this. It's not like Abraham was awesome. He goes up, his name was Abram, and he goes up to Abram and he says, you're going to be the father of my people. I don't want Henry. I don't want Joe. I don't want, you know, Roger. I want you, Abram. I want you to be the father of my people. And Abram's like, okay. And so to make this long story pretty short, Abram has a son who has a son. His name's Jacob. Uh, Jacob also can be called Israel. God calls him Israel. Israel has 12 sons. Um, those 12 sons, as you go throughout uh, history of Israel, those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. So each, each one of those sons has many children and children and children. And so you've got the tribe of Benjamin here. And you've, they've, there's everybody that can link themselves up to Benjamin, who is one of Israel or Jacob's sons. That's, that's, one, that's one tribe. That's the 12 tribes. And as they're going, they, they say, basically, there was a theocracy, which is, God is in charge of the government of the people of Israel. And they say, we don't want to be a theocracy anymore. We don't want you to be our king. The rest of the countries around here have kings. Uh, there's a man that, over, that, does, that, you know, that, that leads them. We want one of those. We want to look like the rest of the countries. That's bad. <laughs> it's bad for God's people to say we want to look like the rest of the countries. But that's what they want. And so God gives them Saul, not so good of a king to start with, but then David. David, you've heard of righteous David, David the king. And so you finally have... David the king, uh, very much in a way that prefigures King Jesus under the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And here it is, finally. You've got this amazing people of God from Abraham that have come to. They're finally in the promised land. They've left Egypt. Here they are. They have a king. Everything's going great. David has uh, a, a, an affair. And then he has another son with her eventually named Solomon. And he takes over the kingdom. But you still have David's son Solomon over all 12 tribes. Well, after that, I mean, it's only two, two generations do they actually have a king with 12 tribes kind of in this united land in the, in the, people, of, the people of God in, in Jerusalem. That's the Old Testament. And then after that, after Solomon, all, there's, there's a breaking in the kingdom. And 10 kingdoms, 10 of those tribes go to the north, and it's called Israel. And two of those kingdoms go to the south, and that's called Judah. And so there's no longer a united kingdom of 12 tribes. It's broken to two 10 at the, in the north and 2 to the south. And now you've got uh, a sequence of events of Israel where, where they once were unified. Now it's breaking. And if you read First and Second Kings uh, in the Old Testament, it's just the story of Judah, I'm sorry, Judah and Israel having good kings and bad kings. Good kings and bad kings. No longer like, like King David. No longer like Solomon. Good kings would, 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 when they were good, the people of God would come back and would, would follow God. But then bad kings would happen and the people of God would follow off into pagans and idols. And when those bad kings would happen, God would send them prophets. Prophets were just men of God that would say, stop acting like this. The Lord loves you. Return to the Lord. Live for God. Don't you want to be forgiven by God? And on the whole, they didn't. On the whole, it didn't happen. Eventually, people came in and invaded the north and took over their land. And they, the, tw- the ten tribes of Israel lost their land. And eventually, the same thing to the south. The two tribes of Judah, the Babylonians came in and destroyed them and sent them off to exile. And so what was a united 12 tribes under King David and King Solomon turned into a destructive era because they just did not want to follow after God and God's hand wasn't with them and they weren't protected and these kings, with these bad kings let them off and all of a sudden it's wiped out. And you've got, especially to the south, which is where we are, as we've reached this particular point finally in the Old Testament, these particular, the tribe of Judah to the south, they're sent off to Babylon. Now, when the Babylonians came in and took over them and took the city from them, that was already kind of a slap in the face to, to the Israelites. They did not like the fact that Babylon took their land. Then, <laughs> to make it worse, the Babylonians took them and sent them over to Babylon in the huge city, pagan evil city, to live there. 
you don't get to live in your land anymore that we have. We're sending you over to our land because the king, Nebuchadnezzar at the time, knew all it takes is one generation. All it takes, if I send them over there to, and they learn our culture, this, this family will die out. But their children will come just like us and they can come back over here and they will be Babylonian. They won't be Israelites anymore. They won't be Jewish. They'll, all it takes is one generation for them to live like pagans and those kids will come over there and they'll look just like us and they'll act just like us. By the way, that's a principle for us. You take one generation out of the church, they're done. There's no coming back. Anyway, um, so that, that's where we are here. And so they've been exiled and as they've been exiled, poor Poor Jeremiah desperately feels bad for him. And he has a message for the exiled Jews or Israelites that are over here in Babylon. He has a message for them. Now, this message, obviously, you can, you can imagine, is not something they want to hear. Not something they want to hear at all. They don't want to be in Babylon. They can't stand the Babylonians. They want to be back in Jerusalem. And had they listened to Jeremiah's warnings, they would be. But where we're picking up in Jeremiah chapter 29 is a letter written to the exiled uh, Israelites because of their sin. Because of their sin, they've been exiled. So here, the title, you can go ahead and put up the title, we can see is exiled to a foreign pagan city for punishment, yes. It is for punishment because of their sin. They're taken up out of Israel and they're exiled over here to a foreign pagan city. But I love the fact that word lets you do these little strike throughs. I mean, it's amazing now. Like strike through. Actually, I don't think it's just punishment. I'm going to say they're exiled, not like on death row, but instead a whole brand new mission. A whole brand new mission has been given to the people of God. You're not in, in Jerusalem anymore. You're sent over to pagan Babylon, not just as punishment, but now you've been given a new mission. So let me ask some questions. Let me ask some questions just to get our minds rolling. Does Rock Hill exist for Remedy Church? Or does Remedy Church exist for Rock Hill? If we answer it with the first question... We're answering it in a very self-centered way. If Rock Hill exists for Remedy Church, we need for them to do good so that we can have all these kinds of things. That's a very self-centered way to want Rock Hill to thrive. However, if it's the reverse, but no, Remedy Church exists for Rock Hill. Instead of being self-centered, it turns to a servant's heart. We exist for the betterment of Rock Hill. The Lord has placed Remedy Church in this particular city, Rock Hill, so that we can, with all of our might and power, serve the city and see the city thrive. Maybe you've never even asked that question. <laughs> I don't blame you if you haven't. Um, but it's a, it's a question to get us going. The larger question is this. Does God have a mission for his church or a church for his mission? I mean, that's, that's the larger question that I'm really asking. Does God have a mission for his church? It's like, okay... I have the church. I need for you to do something. Hmm, what can I do? Don't like checkers. Don't like chess. Uh, Xbox is old. I know. I'll give you a mission. I'll give you a job to go do. Matthew 28, go make disciples. Or is it, I already have a mission. I need for people to be reached and come into the family. Poof, create a church so that you can go do this mission. It's very different. It's very different. The mission has always preceded and therefore is of more importance than the church. The church was created for the mission, not the reverse. Not the reverse. So, um, having all those kind of preliminary questions bouncing around in your heads, as we're going into Jeremiah 29, I think we're going to get some pretty interesting takes here. Now, Jeremiah chapter 29, 11, I'll go ahead and read it. It says, we're going to get to it, but it's going to take a little bit. I want you to see Jeremiah 29 in its most striking striking, astonishing, remarkable context. Not the out of context where we have, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That's the most kind of quoted, I think, coffee cup verse out of context out of the Bible, likely in all Christendom. You know, God knows his plans. He, he's got my job lined up. He's got my soulmate lined up. He's got everything lined up for me. He knows my plans. Like, I think that's how we kind of take it. The Gamecocks are going to win. Everything's good. He's, he's, he's for me. I'm going to have the dream job and the dream girl and the best kids. They always behave. And, and all these things are going to line up because God knows my, my individualistic plans. Like that's, I don't think at all that's what's happening here. So um, now let, let's see what's going on. And so we can get a full understanding of these exiles sent to a pagan city, not just for punishment, 
but for mission, but for mission. All right, verse one. These are the words that Jeremiah, the prophet, sent from Jerusalem to the surviving uh, elders of exile. So Jeremiah is still in Jerusalem, and he knows they're exiled, so he writes them a letter and wants them to know, this is what the Lord says for you now that you're there. It's going to be kind of wordy here in these next couple sentences, but just know the the prophet Jeremiah is writing this letter. And it says, the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, this was after the king Jeconiah and the queen mother and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Alasa, the son of Shaphan, I know we don't know these people, and Gamariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. All right, so in other words, Jeremiah sent a letter. Verse 4. This is what it says. This is what it says. Um, it's, It's rather interesting. Thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, to all the exiles, so all those that are in Israel, notice, whom I have sent into exile, whom I have sent into exile. You need to realize that the exile is absolutely done under the sovereign hand of God. God sent them there on purpose as a consequence for their sin, but not just merely to exist. I think sometimes when we think punishment, we think, you know, like death row, it's just a death row experience. They're there for 23 hours a day where they sit in their cell. They're given one hour to kind of come outside, look at the sunlight, and then they're back in there for 20. And their whole life is just death row. They have to kind of exist. It's just a mere existence now because they've been exiled. Don't think that's why I struck through punishment and said, no, it's not that. It's mission. He doesn't exile them there to just kind of meagerly exist for the rest of their life until poof, they're gone because they're not important anymore. That, that's not what's happened here. It's mission. So they're sent to this city. Now, in the wretched city of ba- Babylon that these people can't stand, the Israelites hate the Babylonians because they took their city and sent them off to their nasty, big, huge pagan city Babylon. So they don't like them where they're supposed to live for now their entire lives. And I say their entire lives because if you look at verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, then you get to come back. 70 years is chosen pretty specifically because most of us live around 70 years. Um, I know it's increasing now, praise the Lord, we like that. But at the time, probably 2,600 years ago, 70 is the tip top. So basically, those who went, you're there for your life. This isn't a, a short little sentence. This is your whole life, you're over in Babylon. Now, When they're sent over to the pagan Babylon, there's three different ways they can choose to live. I'm taking these three different ways from a book called Christ and Culture by H. Richard Niebuhr. I mean, he didn't write it 2,600 years ago. He wrote it just recently. But the principles that he writes in this book are are the way anybody can live in any particular culture they're not familiar with. Now, I would not suggest reading this book. I was assigned this book, and it's it's the most difficult book I think I've ever read in my life. Um, But to summarize it all for you, to save your time. Whenever you're sent into a culture, just think, we as Christians can live in American culture in one of three ways. These particular people of God can live in that pagan culture in one of three ways. The first one is is to ghetto themselves off or to stay away from the Babylonians. They're sent into the city, but they're going to make themselves a little, you know, Christian town part of the whole city. We're going to, it's like a monk. It's a monastery. It's a, it's we don't want to be over there with them. They're the sinners. So we're going to ghetto ourselves off and stay away from, uh, from all of them. We're, we live in the city. Our zip code is, you know, Babylon City. But we have our little place here where only people here are Christians and that's it. They never ever are part of being involved in the people in the city. That's, that's one way. Not recommended. There's a second way, which is that you actually entrench yourself completely in the city. But so much so that you're so much a part of the city that the, the difference between the people of God and the pagans of the city is absolutely indistinguishable. They entrench themselves in so much in culture that they're not distinct whatsoever. So that's not good either. We can see if, if Christians entrench themselves in American culture so much so that there's no distinguishable difference between them, that's not good either. So you don't ward yourself off or ghetto or silo yourself off so much that you're not ever involved or you don't entrench yourself so much so that there is no distinguishable difference. There is a third way. And this is kind of the book that Niebert writes. And his, his category is Christ's transforming culture. And 
So here's the third way. It's that you are in the city being salt and light. You're living as God's people, uniquely different to these people, but not so much in a way that you're kind of warding yourself off. You're uniquely different from them, but at the same time, you're also uniquely linked in society that you're happy to have these new neighbors. In other words, this is what uh, a commentator said that's happening in, in, uh, in Jeremiah's time. The gist of Jeremiah's prophecy was that God was going to build his city in the middle of Satan's city. Not off to the side, but right in the middle. Or the surprising plan for the redemption of this particular city of Babylon meant that he was going to build the city of God smack dab in the middle of city of man. So the way that they're supposed to live in the culture is not stay away, not entrench themselves where they don't look, the, they just look the same as Babylonians, but instead be a part of the city, uniquely different so that they stand out, but also not so uniquely different that they shove them off because they actually love the people, they get to know the people, and they're uniquely societally linked with them. They're neighbors, they go to the same grocery stores, they share the same economy, and things like that. So that's, that's the third way that they should live and that they're going to live, which we're going to see. Now, here we see that they've been exiled to Babylon, which is a city, a huge city, a very, very large city at this particular time, a pagan large city, a, a hub of culture for, for the people of God for multiple opportunities, multiple opportunities to be able to do something for the Lord. Now, I want to talk about cities here for a second because the fact that they're sent to a city and not sent to the middle of nowhere if we lived back then, we would think this is the middle of nowhere, but it's not. It's like, it's, it's, it's a big city. And so I want to stop and talk about cities in regard to us today. This comes from Al Mohler. He's the president of a seminary up in Kentucky. Um, this is actually a quote from another book called Center Church from Tim Keller. But um, he's quoting Al Mohler, talking about the absolute necessity for Christians to understand that the cities is where ministry should happen. And basically what he's going to say from 2015 to where we are, if you track back to about 1715, um, 300 years ago, there's a shift, a major shift in the way people live their lives. That's important for Christians. What what are we told by God in Matthew 28? As you're going, make disciples. So if I live in, in, in this particular area and it's just me that lives here, how many disciples, this is real easy math, if you are real bad at math, if one person lives here, how many disciples can I make? And I'm the one person. The answer would be zero. The answer would always be zero. <laughs> so in order to be obedient to God to make disciples, you have to be where people are. This is what he says. Al Mohler said, this much is clear. The cities are where the people are. In the course of just less than 300 years, our world as we know it will have shifted from where 3% of people lived in cities that's back to 1715, to where 80% of people now reside in urban areas. And by like 2040, I think, it's going to be like 95. Everybody's moving to cities. It's just the way it's going. So as Christians, we have to think differently then. And this is what he says. If the Christian church does not learn, therefore, new modes of urban ministry we will find ourselves on the outside looking in. The gospel of Jesus Christ must call this generation of committed Christians into into these teeming cities. That means overflowing with people. As new numbers make it clear, there is really just no choice. This is what Keller says after that. The people of the world are now moving into the great cities of the world many times faster than the church is. That's why we don't have a massive, massive presence in huge cities, not just in America, around the world. That's where, why big cities are turning away from God. It's because everybody's moving there and Christians aren't. Now we live here. I know we live here. But I wanted you to think expansively worldwide about cities. And let me give you a little bit of history as well of what happens when Christians go to cities. Now, this is a book, uh, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. So what he does is, as soon as Christians come up on the scene, you know, around 30 to 100 A.D., or I'm supposed to say A.D. 100, it always goes first, I always get it backwards, uh, until around 300, I don't know, 50 
AD, or AD 350, all right? So around there, that first few hundred years of the Christian church, he, he, he looks at it and he says, this is what happens when there's needs everywhere and then Christians come to those cities and meet those needs. So before that, there was always needs, but it was different. And this is what he says, to cities that were filled in those first few hundred years, to cities that were filled with homeless and impoverished people, Christians offered charity as well as hope. To the cities that were filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To the cities that were filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expansive sense of family. To the cities that were torn with violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. People had been enduring catastrophes for centuries before Christianity started without the aid of Christian theology or social structures. And then he says, I'm by no means suggesting that the misery of the ancient world caused the beginning of Christianity. What I am going to argue is that once Christianity did appear, Christianity's superior capacity for meeting these chronic problems of the time became so evident and they played such a major role in Christianity's ultimate triumph. For what Christians brought to these needs was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture. So when Christianity comes into these cities and meets massive needs, historically, it's always improved the cities and it's always met the needs. Christians, they, they get it and they get busy about doing the Lord's work in these cities. That's what's historically always happened. And so here we see that we're called to cities. Now here we're going to see they're called to a city. These particular people, they're exiled to a city, you could say. I'll say called because God sent them. But what I want you to see here then is why God sent these people to the city. Now, this is, this is really important. As we see why God sent an ancient people 2,600 years ago to a city, and we, we're just going to see, this is why God sent them. I want you to do this. It's really simple. This is what, why God sent people 2,600 years ago. Hmm. I wonder why God sends me to Rock Hill 2,600 years later. And the reason why he sent them, the four reasons, I wonder if any of those reasons apply to me. Very, very simple. The first one, look what happens in verse 4. Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, I have sent you there. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. The first reason God sent them over to this city far away, where to a city that they did not like, the reason why he sent them there is because he wanted them to have a presence in the city. That's why he says, build houses, live in the houses, plant gardens, have wives, have sons and daughters. Give those sons and daughters to be married so they can have more sons and daughters. Multiply. Do not decrease. This isn't death row where you just die out. This is multiply time. This is I'm sending you to a foreign city, and I want you to get bigger there. Now, you're already seeing why I say punishment, mission. So the first thing that he sends them there is to have a presence in the city. He wants them to get bigger while they're there, not smaller. So what does presence mean? I've already said that it doesn't mean silo yourself off. It doesn't mean Make yourself so much a part of the culture that you don't look any different. It means be in the culture, uniquely, characteristically God followers, Christians, but also uniquely linked with the non-Christians there. Living life with them, learning who they are, becoming their friends, telling them how they can become God followers, Christ followers. But in the text, it also tells us exactly what it means, what presence looks like. It means that we live as salt and light in the city, but for them it means build houses. Build a house. That's what I want you to do. I want you to build a house. You're not going to be there for six months. You're going to be there for 70. You probably should build a house. You're going to need somewhere to live. Plan to live there a while, in other words. Or live in them. Don't just build the house and rent it and make money and go somewhere else. Build that house and live in it. Plant gardens. Plan to be there a while. Now, I'm not saying transfer, like, you need to plant a garden now. I'm not saying that. You might be like me, terrible at planting a garden. If I didn't have Christy, we wouldn't have any tomatoes and stuff. I can't stand pulling weeds. I, I'm really good at turning on the water. I, I knock that out. I'm, I'm a grand slam on knocking, turning on the water. But other than that, I'm not so good at it, right? So if we can take that and kind of incorporate it into this experience where we are today, it means be a, a part of the larger food economy. 
if you will. They're planting gardens and tomatoes and da da da, and then they're planting cucumbers and whatever they planted, who knows. But if everybody plants all these things and then we share it, we're part of the larger food economy. And he's telling them, be a part of the larger food economy with people. If you're really good at making pizzas, make pizzas, invite people over, and then have their burritos or whatever, steaks or whatever. Like, eat with people, be a part. We know that it's just. There's something uniquely interesting that when people get together and eat together, we're certainly united together in some way. We're brought together in a deeper manner when we enjoy a steak and a glass of wine together. It's it's not the same as eating McDonald's in your car, right? It's just not the same when we come together and eat dinner with someone and ask them questions and we eat. God does something there, and he wants you to be a part of that. Eat produce, plant gardens, and eat produce together together uniquely different, but uniquely tied to this society. Enjoy these good gifts of the produce that you get. And then he tells them to take wives. While you're there, you're going to get married in Babylon. I want you to get married in Babylon. Imagine hearing this. Imagine the unmarried. You want me to get married in Babylon? Babylon? So he tells them, take wives. Don't be in a hurry to get back to Jerusalem because you're not coming back. Get married there. And then he says, have sons and daughters. Now, obviously, this is after marriage. Um, Have children. And not just have kids, have lots of kids. And then they, think about this. You want me to raise a child in Babylon? You want me to raise my child in Babylon? There's an alarm somewhere. All right, it'll go off, I'm assuming. All right, imagine imagine the feeling that the, the Israelites heard when they say, when God tells them, We want you to have kids. Feel feel the weight of God's message when he says, yes, have kids in Babylon and raise kids in Babylon, in the enemy's backyard. I mean, that's that's an amazing thought where a lot of times we say, I don't don't want to have kids and raise them there. Is that a safe place to have children? He's saying, have kids, lots of them, and raise them in Babylon. Not only that, let those children grow up and also have children. And the big call here, this presence is, put down deep roots. Be noticed. Not siloed, not so much. Be noticed and be a part of the presence of the city. That's what he's telling them. So let's, let's apply that here. Let's, let's think about what it means. Remedy Church, are we establishing a presence in the city? Christians, church, are we establishing a presence in Rock Hill? Does Rock Hill exist for Remedy Church, or does Remedy Church exist for Rock Hill? Remedy Church exists for Rock Hill. Let's have a, an important presence in, in the city of Rock Hill. That means get involved with the local chapters, whatever they are that you're interested in, in the city. Whatever you're good at, find something that helps the city so the city can get better at that. And, and leave margin in your life. That means free time. Leave free time in your life so that you can do it. So that if they come to you and say, hey, can you do this thing you're good at? Well, six months from now, I have one free Wednesday afternoon from two to three. I could squeeze you in there, but it's got to be fast. Like, we live such jam-packed schedules, we have no margin to do anything. Not even be with our church, much less serve our city. God wants you to have a, a life of thriving and helping and serving the city because Remedy Church exists for the city. So we need to be able to do that. So let me just ask this one question here. You probably never thought of this question, so it's not meant to convict, it's meant to get your mind rolling. What does your presence look like? What does your presence look like in Rock Hill? What does your presence, serving and thriving, because we're supposed to establish a presence, what does your presence serving the city look like? Now, when I say serving the city, I mean as a Christian, As a Christian, a unique Christian, distinct from sinful practices, but also uniquely linked with these people, so that as you're doing life with them, they notice that you're different, and they ask you why you're different, so that you have opportunities for the gospel. And you have opportunities to actually serve the city, so it improves. You you want for things to improve in the city, because they want things to improve in the city. So that's what I mean by, what does your presence? And if you don't know, I would just say this. Ask God, what can I do? What can I do? We don't want for something I call the testament effect to happen to us. You ever been to Lifeway and you're checking out? Have you ever noticed that they literally have something called testaments? 
These are Christian mints. They're, they're called testaments. As if Tic Tacs and all the, the regular secular mints are no good. We can only eat the testaments, right? We don't want the testament effect to happen to us. If I'm looking at remedy, I don't think that the case is that we're going to entrench ourselves into society that we look just like them. I think our tendency is to silo ourselves off and have our own little community where we're not intrinsically linked with society as well. Don't let the testament effect happen to you. It's okay to eat secular Tic Tacs. Or, you know what I mean? It's okay to be involved in the city and have a presence in the city. Ask the Lord, what am I good at and how can I serve the city and make the city better? And while I do that, the people I'm interacting with in life, how can I tell them about Christ? How can I be uniquely interlinked with this society so that when I meet people I don't know, they see something different. They say, why are you, they will ask. It may take six years. Why are you so different? When your life explodes sometimes, I freak out. Why do you not? Man, that's like, that's the, that's basically the same as Acts 16.25 when the guy says, tell me how to be saved. When the jailer looks at Paul and says, tell me how to be saved. That's all, that's all they're asking. Why are you so different? Jesus, Jesus. So what I want you to do is ask yourself the question, how can I establish a presence in the city? He tells them in four through six to do it those ways. Build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat produce, take wives. But that just means establish a presence, put down deep roots, and make sure those roots are going to be long-lasting in the city. All right, the next thing that he does is this. Now, feel the weight of this, okay? We're going to talk about the, the depth of the word shalom in just a second. But feel the weight of what God asks his people to do in verse 7. Exiled to a pagan land they hate. Seek the, I know our version says welfare. He tells the Israelites in Babylon to seek the shalom of Babylon. (laughs) Are you serious, God? I hate Babylon. You want me to seek its shalom? I can't, if anything at all, I want the opposite of shalom to be here in Babylon. I want to leave here now and I want it to explode. That's what I want. And you're telling me to seek its shalom? What does shalom mean? Shalom, welfare, it's not just, um, you know, basic level peace. It's not like, you know, in middle school, I don't know if y'all remember this. In middle school, whenever there's a fight, everybody's like, fight, fight, fight. And everybody circles up and they let these two kids kill each other. And no one ever kind of steps in and says, stop. You know, it's not, like, it's not that you're the mature Christian that steps into the middle school fights and stops. I suck the shalom of the middle school. It's, it's not that. It's not just this... It is that, but it's far more than just a basic maintaining of civility of peace in the city. It's, it's far more than that. Seeking the shalom of your city, it's, shalom is a very rich term. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 2 in creation, when God had created everything, before sin broke in, absolute shalom permeated all of creation because everything was perfect. Then sin came in, but before that it was The world was operating exactly how it's supposed to be. Shalom is a rich term talking about this idea of building up a community that teaches us how to embrace the well-being of the the community, the contentment, the wholeness, the health, the prosperity, the safety and rest. It brings order. It brings harmony. It brings happiness. It makes everything in the city the right way the city should be, the way that God designed it. It's comprehensive peace. And he tells them, I want you to seek with your daily actions, your entire life, do all that you can to bring shalom to Babylon. Oh man, can you even imagine how they felt there? The last thing they want to do is count that as their mission. Can we just be punished now instead of actually being put on mission? So if you were in any doubt that this isn't just punishment but mission, this, this is missiological wording. Seek the shalom of this city. That's a mission for them. Now, we need to understand there's a little bit of a difference between Old Testament mission and New Testament mission. Old Testament mission is go to a certain city, follow God, and as you follow God, people will see that God blesses the city and it grows and there's life and longevity here for the people here. And if they get close to that and they get to be a part of the way things happen, then they'll experience blessing and longevity of temporal life. That's kind of the Old Testament mission. Be a beacon of light 
here. And if people get close enough, then they can experience that. New Testament mission is do that, but also tell them about Christ. Tell them about salvation through Christ and the gospel. And they don't just get temporal 70 years of easy, fun life or, you know, nice life or whatever. They get forgiven forever and they get to live in heaven forever forgiven of their sin. They won't go to hell and experience wrath, the wrath of God, but they'll experience forever the internal love of God. And so here, New Testament mission is different. Philip Ryken says, whatever shalom was that the Hebrews were offering in Babylon, Christians can also offer this, but they offer it at a much greater level, the peace that they can offer to their cities. Whatever What we offer is eternal peace with God through the work of Christ on the cross. That peace that we have with God now is the absolute basis for everything else we do in the city. So when I say serve your city, the basis for you serving your city and making Rock Hill better, the basis of that is the cross of Christ. Because Jesus has brought peace to you eternally, we can bring peace, shalom to our city. So the basis of any kind of city talk is always Jesus. It makes us neighborly, compassionate, charitable people. When the city finds peace with God, then all will be well in the city. So we're not trying to bring a, uh, a civility of, hey, stop fighting. Instead, we're trying to, we're not breaking up fights. We're trying to transform minds to come to know Jesus. And then there, you don't have to break up fights. Because everybody follows Jesus. Make sense? That's what we're, we're transforming the culture by bringing Christ Only the church can offer this. Only the church can offer any city this. No one else can offer a city this besides the church. And you need to realize, just as they were sent in verse 4, if you, whatever city you live in, you're already sent to that city as exiles. Did you you know you're already sent? John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, just as the Father has sent me, so I right now, happened 2,000 years ago, send you. So you're already sent as exiles because we're not citizens of this world, we're citizens of heaven, Philippians 3.20. And so because of that, we're already sent on mission by God to our cities, whatever city you live in, we're already sent there to help them in our city find ultimate peace with God. Uh, One commentator says, Jeremiah's instructions here form a part of a wider biblical tradition that God's people can serve by serving wider society in their various occupations. This means whatever occupation you have, whatever your vocation is, as you do it in the city, you're bettering the city, you're comprehensively bringing shalom because you are a Christ follower in the city, and as you're interacting with everybody, you're doing everything you can to tell them about Christ. And all the spheres of influence that the Lord allows you to have in this city you're doing it for the mission, for Christ's gospel. This is why, as, as I said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. And so we are exiles here, sent by God already, just like they were exiles to Babylon. We're, we're exiles here to Rock Hill. Rock Hill isn't our ultimate home. It is our home. We're putting down roots and we're staying. We're building houses and we're planting gardens. We're having sons and daughters and letting our sons and daughters have sons and daughters. But this isn't our ultimate citizenship. Our citizenship is in heaven. So we're very similar to these particular people. So the first thing is to set up a presence. The second thing is to seek the shalom, which means that we need to do the same. We need to seek the ultimate peace that people can find in Christ with the city that we're in. We want to bring Christ to the city. Now the next one, if that wasn't astonishing enough, the next one is even more astonishing. Not only does he tell them, in every action, I want you to seek the shalom of this pagan city you're in. But then he says, and pray to the, it says Lord in all caps, that's the, the, the name Yahweh, the I am of the I am. Pray to the Lord Yahweh on its behalf for the welfare and you will find welfare. So the third thing he says, don't just seek the welfare of the city through your actions. Pray for the shalom of the city. I mean, Imagine the reaction, the angry response that the Israelites felt as this letter was being read to them when they're told to pray for the city of Babylon. They don't even want to be there. And they're being told by God to pray for the city, to pray for the shalom. It must have been for them, seemed for them impossible theologically and emotionally and even politically to pray for the shalom of this particular city. But that's what they're being told. And I I would say, this pray for your enemies 
It's not a different message that we have now. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in Matthew 5, 44, tells us the exact same thing where he says, I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So it's the same message that Christ tells us, to pray for our enemies. So the third thing is, for us, he tells them to pray for the prosperity of the city. That's the shalom. It's the same thing. It's the, it's the comprehensive peace that we're supposed to do the same thing as well. We're supposed to pray for our city. So, um, why? Why does God want you to pray for your city? So that, you know, he answers my prayer and people get saved. Okay, yeah, I know that. Let me ask it a different way. What happens in your heart when you pray for people? I, at least from my experience, it gets pretty soft. It gets pretty soft for them. People that I think don't know Jesus, maybe the Lord said they don't know Jesus, talk to them. When I pray for them, my heart gets soft for them. So the, the praying is also a work of the heart. It's not just the actions. I want you to seek the welfare of the city, but it's the heart behind it. I want you to have a heart that loves these people. So I'm going to ask you to pray for them. And as they pray for them, I guarantee you, if you pray for the people in your city, and you pray for this city, that you will evangelize in this city more. I guarantee you. It's impossible. This is, this is amazing that I'm saying this, right? Guarantee. I guarantee you, if you pray for this city, and you pray for people around you that don't know Jesus, you will find yourself doing evangelism. Let's tell him about Jesus more. Because God's going to soften your heart for the people here. And so, let me ask this one question. This is not meant to make you feel bad. This is to get your mind rolling to, to what it could look like. What does your prayer life, let's say, what could your prayer life for the city and the people of the city look like? If I ask what does it look like, you'd probably like thinking, not so much. <laughs> but what could it look like? Incorporate within your daily Christian walk a time where you pray for the, the city and the people in the city. So the third thing is presence. The first is set up a presence. The next one is seek the prosperity. Um, do all you can to bring shalom. The next one is pray for it. This next one's kind of interesting here. In verse 8, it says, For thus says the Lord of hosts to God of Israel, Do not let the prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. What is he talking about? Well, this is what he's talking about. One chapter over, in Jeremiah 28, a prophet came to the people and gave them this false hope. They're like, hey, guess what? Um, Hananiah, not so good of a guy, comes and says, I got a, I got a message for you. Um, instead of being here for, for your whole lifetime, it's just two years. So he brings this false prophet. You can see it in Jeremiah 28, starting at verse 10. The prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of, or the, the holding that Nebuchadnezzar the king has on the people of Babylon, or from Babylon to the neck of the nations within two years. But Jeremiah went on his way. And so they hear that and they're like, two years? Well, I can handle that. Two years sounds good to me. I mean, I can't stand this place. I don't even like the smell. I can deal with two years. Seventy does not sound good, but two, I can do two in my, in my sleep. No big deal. And this is what God comes and says. This is the lie that, that he says. He says, don't believe that. Don't let those prophets, diviners who are among you deceive you and listen to the dreams they dream, for it's a lie that they are prophesying to in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. It's not two years. And then he says in verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll visit you and I'll fulfill my promise and bring you back to this place. It's not two, it's 70. They wanted it to be two. They wanted to be in it for the short term. They wanted nothing to do with Babylon for this extended period of time. But God tells them, you need to be in it for the long haul. Not two, 70. And so, mission for them was long term. So the fourth reason he sent them there is this. He sent them there. I didn't reword it, so it's going to be a little grammar needed. <laughs> he sent them on mission for their life. Oh, somebody reworded it for me. He sent them on mission for their lifetime. Thank you. He sent them on mission for their lifetime. So let me make sure I'm clear here. It wasn't a short-term mission trip, and then they can do whatever they want. Mission for Christians is not um, a season. 
It's not a period of life. It's not something that we do when we're young. It's not something that we wait to finally do when we're old, when we have time. Mission for us is our entire life. When you become a Christian until you go, that's when you're on mission. So commit your life to mission. Commit your life to mission. He sent them to to mission for his lifetime. And it's supposed to be for us as well. Mission, the fourth reason he sent is for them to see that it's all about your entire life. And then he gets to the coffee cup promise. Then he gets to verse 11. So as we see thus far, the context is not rainbows and Disneyland and everything's great. I got these great plans so you can have this great spouse and this great college and all these kids that don't ever disobey. I got all these great plans for you. Your future is going to be awesome. It's, it's given to them in the context of being exiled for their sin for a long time in Babylon, a pagan city with people they don't like and they have to raise their children there. And then he gives them this promise. So understand the context. It's not all butterflies and rainbows. Um, but let me read this quote. This is a, a commentator, Philip Ryken. This is what he says. Just a quick quote on how this verse is often misunderstood. He says this. When God says he knows the plans he has for you, it's important to understand by um, whom he means when he says you. Christians often apply Jeremiah's promise to them individually, saying, Terrific! God knows the plans he has for me. And he says, this shows how self-centered Bible reading can be. Jeremiah's promise should not be taken individualistically. It is not a private promise. Instead, the you there is plural. So we Southerners have fixed this problem. We have the word, y'all. I know the plans I have for y'all. Yes, the South has risen. I'm just kidding. The South has fixed this problem, right? The South has helped them understand. It's y'all. It's not even you guys. It's y'all. I know the problem. It's y'all. I'm, I'm kidding. The South is not going to rise again. I'm not at all for that. Anyway, it, it is for the entire church. It is not a private promise. It's for the entire church. The you and I know the plans I have for you refers to plural. So it's not for you guy, you know, you got these great things. It's for the whole people of God. Before thinking about what the promise means for you individually, you should always ask yourself, what does the big promise mean for us, the church, as we read this? In Jeremiah's case, the promise of return was for the whole community of exiles. The case of the church, in the case of the church, the promise of salvation for Christ is for the whole community of believers. So this promise of great plans that's given by God, as I said, in proper context is given to a suffering people, exiled for sin, not liking that they're there. Their kingdoms that they had, gone. Not to return. Their Old Testament kingdoms were done for. And he's saying, not to be restored. They're about to enter the intertestamental period pretty soon where God's not even going to speak to them. And then here comes this amazing little promise out of nowhere. Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Chris Wright says, this is a surprising word of hope to a people who stood under God's judgment. Even in and through the fires of judgment, there can be hope in the grace and goodness of God. Now the promise. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. There's more than, by the way, in the promise in 11. It actually goes all the way down to verse 14. It's really good. Um, then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me and I will hear you when you seek me and find me. With, when you seek me, here it is, all predicated on this, with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I have sent you into exile. So that's the huge promise in context. Now let's understand it. What are God's plans for them including? Wholeness future, hope. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Wholeness, future, hope. Okay. What, what else? The, the plans include them calling on God, them seeking God, and then as they do that, them finding God. And it's predicated on the fact that when they do that, that they do it with all their heart. It's not, ah, you know, whatever you want, I can do with you a little bit. No, it's seek me with all your heart. Then you're going to call upon me, seek me, and you will find me. And when you do it with all your heart, I'll actually bring you back and provide for you wholeness, future, and hope. So let's just ask this question. As we look at it, does it sound like to you, since we know it's you plural, not you singular, that God has this secret future plan that's just for you, for you to finally get the job you've always wanted? That's what the coffee cup verse 
seems to think, right? Is it that God sounds like he's counting all these days where he's going to finally just insert you into the plan to save the day for him? I don't think that that's the case. Or since it's you plural, y'all, the people of God, does this promise instead given to a whole group of people using words like wholeness, future, hope, calling, seeking, and finding me when you do it with all your heart and then I finally bring you back to the promised land, does it sound a little bit more like great gospel good news given to his people? Especially in the time period of Israel's history where all the stuff had happened. This is the end of Old Testament Israel's good history. What makes more sense? Makes more sense to me that this is all about great gospel good news given to his people. Chris Wright says, you should notice the gospel of these verses contained in the verbs. Then you will and I will. The movement of God's heart to seek God is itself a gift of God's grace. It will happen. It's going to happen in the future and it's not going to happen the way they think. Even while it is necessary condition that they have to do it with all their heart in order for them to receive the grace. This is, I didn't write this. Chris Wright wrote it. It's the best line of the whole sermon. So listen to this. God's grace gives what God demands. God demands, no question about it. But his demands that he has are met by him giving you the grace in order to meet those demands. God's grace gives what God demands. That's amazingly good news. That's great gospelicious good news. I mean, that's extraordinary Jesus-centered, Christ-honoring good news. It's God telling them that when the exile will end, he will bring them out. As I said at the very beginning, this story is kind of an extraordinary, similar microcosm to the story of Christianity. This story of Christianity about us being exiles to a foreign land because our citizenship is heaven in order to be on mission, this story is a microcosm of that, of, of everybody's story of Christ, being Christians. And in the end, the great gospel promise ha- happens for them is the great gospel promise for us that we'll be made whole, given a future based on hope that when he calls us, we will seek him and we will find him with all of our heart. And then we be restored to the promised land brought back, which is heaven. This, I think, is gospel. Because we're exiled just like our sin. He has promised us that those who seek Christ will find Christ and he will make them whole. He will give them a future and it's all based on hope or or faith, if you will. All it takes is for us to call upon him and if we call upon him, we will be found by him when we seek him with all of our heart. And then he will bring you out of the place that you're exiled. All of the Christians, he'll bring them all out of them and will be taken off the path towards hell, which leads to destruction, which many find, the wide road, as it says in Matthew 7, and put on the path towards heaven, on the narrow road. And few find it where we will be able to receive Christ and be with Jesus forever. No longer destined for hell and destruction and the wrath of God, but instead forgiveness in Christ, righteousness and, and um, righteousness given to us. If we, as it says in Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you'll be saved. For it's with the heart that ones believe and is justified. That means declared righteous, declared innocent. You're innocent now because Jesus took your, took your payment. And it's with, with the mouth that one confesses and is saved. And for every believer that experiences that, then they get the promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. Wholeness. Future. Hope. And that the fact that they call on God and seek God, they will find God because they do it with all their heart. And final, restoration into Jerusalem, heaven. This is all just a microcosm of the greater story of Christianity. So his plans are still to prosper us, but to prosper us in Christ. To prosper us in Christ so that by forgiving our sin... When he forgives our sin, he allows us then to now join with him on mission, already sent disciples to reach our city with this same gospel message that saved us. That's, that's an extraordinary, I think, 
understanding of Jeremiah 29. That's the full understanding of it. So what does that mean for us then? It means for us, how is our life going to translate into this? We're already sent. I think during this time of response, if the Lord's leading you, maybe you need to have a greater presence. Maybe you need to seek the welfare of your city. Maybe you need to pray. Maybe you need to just to commit for the lifetime. I've always been the short-term missionary Christian. And I'm going to say, yes, here's my life. However the Holy Spirit's leading right here, I want you to just be obedient to the leading. You can stand and sing with us, but if you just need some time to reflect and think and pray through some of these things, follow that. Because the good news is, He has saved us. He has brought wholeness and future and hope for those who are in Christ. And one day we will be finally restored to Him in heaven. Let's pray together. God, be with us now as we reflect and think on this passage and think on this teaching and think on this text. And really, think on the mission that you've put us on. And I pray for all of us as we think about this, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you would come now and that we would really pray. We would really ask for your help. That we would really say, I need to have a greater presence. Or, God, I really need to seek the shalom of the city by being a sent disciple with the gospel. Or, God, I really need to pray for the people around me so that I'll evangelize more. Or, I need to say, yes, God, here's my life. I'm not going to just commit to two years and a short-term mission experience, but instead, God, here's my life. My life is your mission. I pray for everyone here, and including myself, however you're leading and challenging us right now, we would be obedient. And maybe perhaps we'll just stand and sing and give you the glory. I pray this in Jesus' name.